All right, hey, welcome to week one of Gospel Fluency. This is a new study that we are jumping into as a part of our Covenant Equipping classes. And uh, our live class happens on Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. at Providence Classical Academy in Bossier City, Louisiana. Uh, And then we record this podcast later in the week. And uh, that gives everybody a chance to... Uh, learn uh, a little bit more about where we're at uh, in the study and gives people a chance to catch up. They missed a week or whatever. And so uh, we're glad that you're listening to this and I hope it's helpful to you. Uh, Like I said, this is week one. So this is a brand new study for us. We just wrapped up a study called Logos Foundations of Effective Bible Study. And we learned about uh, just the process of inductive Bible study and how we, as people who are seeking to follow Jesus in this world, can engage God's Word in uh, maybe a more responsible way, uh, not just as, as kind of casual spectators or observers of Scripture, but as people who are actively digging into uh, the meat of Scripture and spending time not just reading the Bible, but also studying the Bible and seeking to apply the Bible to our lives and our world. And so, uh, let's jump in this week, uh, Gospel Fluency. Uh, this is based on a book, if you're not aware, there's a book called Gospel Fluency that's by uh, a guy named Jeff Vanderstelt. Uh, it's one of two books that he's written, the other book is called Saturate. And uh, Jeff Vanderstelt is a pastor uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I think he's in the Seattle area. He's actually uh, the pastor of a church called Doxa Church. And this is a church that was at one time called Mars Hill Church. And and so I don't know if you're familiar with Mark Driscoll, who was the pastor at Mars Hill Church for years and um, and stepped down or was fired or, or something, something happened a couple of years ago with, with Mark Driscoll. Um, and, and they actually wound up changing the name of the church and reorganizing the church, I believe. And, and Jeff Vanderstelt became their pastor. He was already a pastor in that area as a part of a church called Soma Church, which had birthed out a network of churches called the Soma Family of Churches. And so uh, he continues to be a part of that SOMA network of churches, as well as teaching and being a part of the pastoral leadership at Doxa Church. And then he has a website called saturatetheworld.com, where there are just tons of resources, a lot of great content. Uh, They have a Saturate podcast as well that I'd highly recommend. Uh, just some really good stuff there. And so uh, I'm excited to dive into this with you guys today. Uh, so let's start with just a question. And, and wherever you are, whether you're in your car or listening at work or, you know, at home or something, uh, I just want you to think about this. And we're going to ask several questions throughout this session. But f- first of all, how would you define the gospel? Just, just take a second or two and, and begin to formulate in your mind, what, what are to you some of the things that are essentials when it comes to defining the gospel? How would you define it? Unfortunately, I think for some people, that's uh, a difficult question. Uh, and it could be because you have been through maybe some kind of evangelism training course at some point in your life, and you were given a, 
a laundry list of things that need to be a part of a gospel presentation. Um, Or it could be that uh, maybe you're not really clear on what Scripture has to say about what the gospel is and how we would go about defining that. I I think there's one thing that we can all agree on, hopefully, and it's this. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, shouldn't this be the easiest question in the world for you to answer? Shouldn't the question of what the gospel is and how one goes about defining the gospel, shouldn't that be one of the easiest things for us to articulate? Because isn't that at the core of what we claim to believe? I I would say it is. Um, Without the gospel, (laughs) then we have no hope. That word gospel, as, as many of you may know, just simply means good news. But not just any good news, the good news specifically of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And not just good news in the sense that Jesus was a real person, but good news in a much more specific way. Uh, The apostles put it this way, guys like Peter and Paul. The good news to them was that Jesus came, that Jesus came to earth that he stepped down out of heaven and came to earth as a man, and that in doing so, God was ultimately giving his only son to reconcile the world to him. Scripture calls Jesus the only begotten son of God, the one and only son of God, and that Jesus is sent as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the one long promised who would come and who would be a blessing to the nations from the lineage of Abraham and who would be a new king to sit on the throne of David. The apostles said Jesus came, and in saying that, they're saying, as the Messiah, Jesus came as the Savior. Jesus is the one that all of these scriptures, all of these Old Testament scriptures, Um, pointed to and talked about. He came, uh, and then he died. This is kind of point two for the apostles. He came, and then he died. And in and through his death, some incredible things happened, but most incredibly, he did not stay dead. But instead, he rose from the dead, proving himself to be the Messiah. So he's not simply the Messiah because we say he's the Messiah. He is the Messiah because he died and rose from the dead. And what Scripture tells us is not only did he rise from the dead, but he he showed himself to people, to numerous people over a period of 40 days. He presented many proofs that he was, in fact, the risen Christ. And then he ascended into heaven. So for the apostles... Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, and Jesus ascended and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And in saying all of those things, and, and hopefully, hopefully you think that's, a per, that's pretty simple, right? Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended. In saying that, what the apostles were saying was this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. There is no other Lord. 
Caesar is not Lord. You are not Lord. You are not your Savior. Some other person is not your Savior. Some political leader is not your Savior. Some military leader is not your Savior. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is our Messiah. And certainly this was a bold claim in the first century. And as you know, most of the apostles were martyred and killed for making that claim. But for them, this was at the core of the good news. The good news was that God had followed through on his promise to bring about a Savior out of Israel, and a Savior who ultimately becomes a blessing to the entire world, because he isn't only for Jews, he is for all people. For God so loved the whole world, right, that he gave his only begotten Son. So, what is the gospel? I think we could say many other things about why the good news of Jesus is good news, but at the core of the gospel is Jesus. That he came, that he died, that he didn't stay dead, he rose from the dead, and that he ascended into heaven. Let's look at a passage of scripture that I think will drive home some of this. This is the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 11, it says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance, which that's just a phrase that means of primary significance, the most important thing. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to, the, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain." On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So here is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth and and very clearly stating to him, here is the primary message that I delivered to you. This is of first importance, right? If you don't understand this, if you don't believe this, then we've got significant issues. So Paul's saying, here's what it was. First importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He died for us. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that, and that phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures, means that this is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So He came in fulfillment of the Scriptures He died and was raised in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And then verse 5, he appeared to Peter, then to the Twelve, then he appeared uh, to more than 500 brothers at one time. So he's saying then Jesus rose from the dead and proved himself. He proved that he was, in fact, the risen Savior. 
And so this is Paul's primary message. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended. And so today we're going to talk about three concepts in light of that. The first concept is the concept of unbelief, and potentially that many of us struggle with unbelief, even though we may not admit it. Um, Secondly, we're going to look at the concept of speaking the truth in love, which is a phrase we get from Scripture. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about fluency. What does it mean to be fluent? What is gospel fluency? Um, And what does that maybe look like in your life? So let's start with this idea of unbelief. Um, So Jeff Vanderstelt in his book makes this claim. He says, everyone is an unbeliever. Everyone is an unbeliever. Now, he's, he's not saying everyone is unsaved. He's just saying everyone in some area of their life struggles with unbelief or disbelief. Uh, a quote from the book, he says, I grew up believing that people fall into two categories. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. You either believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, or you don't. Now, after more than 25 years as a pastor, I see that every one of us is an unbeliever, including me, at least in some areas of our lives. So hopefully, if you're being honest with yourself, you can quickly see how this is true. There is some quadrant of your life where you struggle with doubt. Is Jesus really the Messiah? Is Jesus sufficient? You know, uh, one for me uh, is prayer. I see prayer as this um, incredible, uh, mystical privilege that we have been given by God, and certainly throughout the Scriptures, uh, it is abundantly clear that prayer is powerful, that prayer is important, that prayer is something that God desires from us. And yet, for me personally, this is an area of unbelief. This is an area where I struggle to believe that this is actually meaningful and that this actually does something. And I know many brothers and sisters in Christ um, who struggle with the same thing. And it's because prayer in and of itself is a sort of supernatural experience. I'm, I'm going to have a conversation. I'm going to speak to and hear from the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. Um, and yet he's not in the room with me per se, even though he is everywhere. But he's not necessarily sitting across from me in a way that I can see. And he's not audibly talking to me. And so just the whole practice of prayer really kind of goes against everything uh, in our world. And, and yet, it, you pull back and you go, man, this is just so spiritual in nature. And I see that it has power. And I've seen it work. And I've seen prayers answered. And yet, for some reason, it is still a struggle. And so we have to be honest about this stuff. We have to be honest about the fact that there are areas of our lives where we struggle with unbelief because when we start to get honest about those things, 
then it becomes easier to begin addressing them and uh, letting the Holy Spirit do his work in those areas of our lives. Ephesians chapter 2, again, this is the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through, sin, uh, 1 through 10, uh, says this, it says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And, and so when we start talking about the gospel, when we start talking about unbelief, the natural next step, I think, is to say, so how does the good news of Jesus speak to and shine light on our areas of unbelief? And this is a great text for coming to a deeper understanding of, of what this whole salvation thing is and what Jesus has done for us. And so I want to look at what we learn from that passage that we just looked at. And again, that's Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, if you want to look it up in your copy of God's Word. A few things that we learn from that text. First of all, we learn that we lived a former life of death. That prior to Christ, even though we were physically alive, uh, we were not spiritually alive. And we certain were not, certainly were not alive eternally. In Christ, and, and notice, notice also in that text, that's a phrase that Paul uses over and over and over again. In Christ, that there is there is something new that's happening here, where we are no longer just in this world, maybe, um, or kind of in ourselves, but we are now in Christ. We are now in union with Jesus because of what He has done for us, and so we lived a former life of death. But now we have taken a step forward into real life. Life that uh, kind of begets life. Life where we have life to look forward to. An eternity of life to look forward to. Um, not a life of death. Uh, secondly, this life of death is lived by all. This is not something that only you have experienced. This is something that everyone has experienced because it's what we're born into. We are born into this broken world of sin and death. You did not at any point make some choice to be broken or to uh, live a life of sin. This is what was ingrained within you because of the nature of the fall. From early on in Genesis, Adam and Eve disobeying God, we are all born under, under a curse. We are all born separated from God which is why we all need a Savior. It's why we all need Jesus. 
And so this life of death is lived by everyone. Um, No one is excluded from that except Jesus himself. Jesus is the perfect human. He is the perfect man. Um, He is the one who is able to be tempted and not sin. He is the new David. He's the new Adam. Um, He is the man after God's own heart that doesn't mess up. So Jesus provides this incredible, perfect example for us. Uh, Number three, because of love, God has made us alive with Christ. We mentioned John 3.16 earlier, for God so loved the world, that, that love is this motivation for God to send His Son, Jesus. Love for us, His creation, as a loving Father, um, even though at times He feels anger towards us, even though He has just uh, wrath towards mankind for mankind's sin, that does not mean that He does not love us anymore. In fact, God is perfect in love, just as He is perfect in His justice and in His wrath. I don't fully understand how that works, right? Because I've never seen that in another human being. And yet somehow God embodies those things. And so it's because of love that God has sent His only Son. It's because of love that God has made made us alive with Christ. Uh, Number four, we are saved by God's grace. God's grace is the agent of our salvation. It it isn't based on uh, our works. It's not based on any other thing except God's sheer, um, generous, abundant grace. And what is grace? Well, grace is unmerited favor. Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. And so when we start talking about salvation, if we have a healthy view of ourselves, meaning we have an honest view of ourselves, then we recognize that we are in no way deserving of God's mercy. And yet He gives it to us anyway through Christ because He loves us. He shows us Grace, And it is through His grace, or because of His grace, that we are saved. Number five, because God has done this, He can show us immeasurable riches in Christ in the age to come. Scripture tells us that at some point Jesus will return. We don't know when that is. Jesus says He doesn't even know when that is. Only the Father knows when that is. But Jesus will return and will ultimately establish a new heaven and a new earth. And um, what, what Ephesians is telling us is that because we have been united with Christ, because we are now able um, to have real life in Christ, we are now um, in a position to receive immeasurable riches from God in the life to come, in the age to come. Um, So what an incredible promise that is for us. Uh, Number six, we are saved by God's grace through faith. So God's grace is the agent of salvation. It is only because of God's grace that we are saved. But Scripture suggests that the way that we access God's grace is through faith in Jesus Christ. And faith in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus says, no one can come to the Father except through me. 
And so Jesus is central in all of this. It is through faith that we access the salvific grace of God. And what is faith? Well, faith, I I think the best word for faith is the word confidence. Um, Some people like the word trust. That certainly um, relates and is certainly very similar. But when we have confidence in God, what we're saying is, God, I believe that you will do everything that you have said you will do. Um, We are resting on him. Our hope is in him. Um, we, uh, not, we don't just believe in, in a mental way. We don't just mentally affirm or mentally assent to the idea of God. But instead, we are kind of acting out what we claim to be true. We're acting out maybe what we say we believe when we place our faith in God. If I believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth, if I believe that he sent his only son Jesus and that Jesus is the Messiah and that if I want to be reconciled to God, then I have to have faith in the Messiah, then, then me actually having faith is, is not just when I say I believe that, me actually having faith is when I put my confidence in that. Because when I put my confidence in that, then things really change about the way that I live life. Things really change about the way that I make decisions. Things really change about the way that I interact with other people. When my confidence is not in myself or in my career, or in my retirement account, or in my children, or in my spouse, or in my uh, president, or in my elected officials, or in anybody else. When my confidence is in Christ, then everything really changes. But up until that point, when I place my confidence in Jesus, then I'm just claiming something. But true belief uh, I think is followed by action. You know, you show me what you do, and I'll show you what you ultimately really believe. And so we want to be a people who don't just say that we believe in Jesus. We want to be a people who uh, actively place our confidence or trust in Christ. And it is that faith that gives us access to what God has done for us. It gives us access to God's grace. Now, here's the nuance. We are not saved through any work of our own. Right? So, so our faith is not the agent of our salvation. Our faith simply gives us access to the agent of our salvation, which is God's grace, which is what Paul is saying here. So we have to be very careful there. God is not saving us because we have done such a good job on the faith side of things. Now, the Bible says we have all fallen short of God's glory and that there are none who are righteous, not even one. We need the righteousness of Christ. And it is because of God's grace that we have access to that through faith. Uh, Number seven, you did not save yourself. This is in line with what we were talking about. You did not save yourself This was God's doing. Salvation is God's work through Christ. Salvation is not based on your effort or your abilities. It's not based on you being a good person or you making moral choices or you being kind to other people. Um, I I saw some research recently, some some statistical analysis, and and I don't remember where where I saw it, but... But it was just uh, kind of pulling uh, uh, the the general 
um, mindset of Americans as, as it relates to faith and a higher power or um, uh, you know, eternity outside of this world. I was just asking some very basic questions, and it wasn't necessarily asking them from a Christian standpoint, but um, a majority of Americans um, said that they generally believed that if they were good people, that they would go somewhere good after they died, and that if they were bad people, they would go somewhere bad after they died. That just seemed to be, and this, again, wasn't from a Christian standpoint. This was just from a general uh, kind of spiritualism standpoint. But that most people out there kind of generally believe, hey, if I'm a good person, then I'm going to go to a good place when I die. And what the Bible tells us is that we are all inherently sinful. And I think this is one of the challenges in our world and culture today, is that is not the predominant belief of most people. And, and I honestly don't know that it's the predominant belief of many Christians either. Um, I think that we are shaped by our culture in ways that we don't even realize. I think there are a lot of Christians who believe that we are all inherently good people who occasionally mess up, rather than what the Bible teaches, which is that we are all inherently sinful people who maybe occasionally do some good things. And, and so this is, this is key for us because... What that means is that we are incapable, not, not just that we haven't done it, but that we are actually incapable of saving ourselves. We are incapable of living up to God's holy standard. And so because we are incapable, not just because we haven't done it, or not just because we haven't lived up to our full potential or something like that, but because literally we cannot do it. Because of that, God, in his love, sent his only son, Jesus, and through Christ, through his death and resurrection, and because of God's mercy and grace, we are offered salvation in and through Jesus. Uh, Next, number eight, and again, we're just walking through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, pulling out the things that we learn. Number eight, salvation is not a result of of one's own actions. We've already kind of said this. You did not save yourself. Salvation is not based on anything you've done. And then number nine, uh, God has formed us in Christ for good works. So, so this is interesting. This, this takes us, um, you know, gives us, uh, you know, maybe like a step forward here. What we're saying is, <laughs> you are not saved through anything you have done, through being a good person, However, if you are saved, right, if, if you have uh, placed your confidence in God's grace, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, well, you have been saved with a purpose. You haven't just simply been saved so that one day later on when you die, you can go to heaven and be with God. Well, no, no, no. What Scripture is very clearly teaching us is that God has saved you with intention and purpose. And so, so that's, that's number nine. God has formed us in Christ for good works. But then finally, number ten, God has prepared these good works for us so that we might walk in them. Um, this is verse ten. This is uh, teaching us that not only... Does God desire to save us and reconcile us to him? But God has work for us to do because we have been saved by him. Um, and this is central to the teaching of the Apostle Paul. 
um, that because in light of uh, God's mercy, in light of what Jesus has done for us, in light of this salvation that we've been given in and through Christ, we are now sent out as the body of Jesus, with Jesus as the head, right? So Jesus now is our righteousness. Jesus now is our Lord. Jesus is our Master. And so we're seeking not only in our everyday lives to try to emulate Him and model and pattern our lives and our actions after Him, but God has prepared good works for us to do. And He has filled us with His Holy Spirit so that we might be empowered to do those things. And so, man, this is a rich, deep text. And if you've grown up in the church or spent any time around the church, it's possible you've heard this particular passage of Scripture preached on uh, dozens of times. And yet, it is something that uh, I come back to and... uh, I'm just like I see things anew. I see things for the first time. Um, it is so simple, and yet it is rich and deep and beautiful. Let's dig a little bit deeper, even in that. Three points, kind of broad summation points for Ephesians two one through ten. First of all, our salvation is not based on anything we can or can't do. What Ephesians says is it is a true gift to us. Right. A true gift is not something you've bought. A true gift is not something you've earned. A true gift is not something you deserve. A true gift is simply that, something that is given to you um, because of, through no merit of your own. And so this is just, again, Paul driving home the grace-based nature of this. And secondly, our salvation is not based on us mentally understanding everything or being fully submitted to Christ in all areas of life. Now, this is, this is a big deal. Remember we said you can't save yourself, and your salvation is not based on your good works. Your salvation is not based on you doing the right things. And, and so, likewise, you keeping your salvation is not based on you doing the right things either. So, your salvation is only contingent on God's grace. It is only by His grace that we are saved. And we said we access that through faith. We don't access that through good works, and we don't keep it through good works either, even though God has prepared good works for us. And so so here's the point. We have areas of unbelief in our lives. We have areas in our lives where we are not fully submitted to Jesus. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we are not saved. It means we are being sanctified. It means we are in this process of becoming more like Jesus. And so we are moving from one end of the spectrum where we are completely and totally incapable of doing anything right, we are totally depraved, to use some theological language. We are people who are separated from God because of our unrighteousness. Um, We have all fallen short of God's glory. But now, through Christ, 
because of God's grace that we access through faith, we are being transformed into the image of Christ. And this process is called sanctification. And we'll look at uh, uh, Jeff's, Jeff Vanderstelt's definition of that in just a second. But this is, this is a big deal. Your salvation is not based on you being fully submitted to Christ in all of life. It is purely based on God's grace. And then thirdly, there are people who are born again in Christ because of God's work, not because of their work, but because of God's word, but who still need to bring more of their lives under the lordship of Jesus. And that is every Christian in our world. There are people who are saved, but who still need to bring more of their life under the lordship of Jesus. And again, that's that process of sanctification. Uh, Vanderstelt says that sanctification is just a big word for becoming more and more like Jesus through faith in Jesus. You become like what you believe in. So becoming like Jesus requires believing in him more and more in every part of your life. Sanctification is moving from unbelief in Jesus to belief in him in the everyday stuff of life. So not just in the spiritual stuff, not just in the church stuff, but in everything. That the gospel of Jesus Christ has something to say about your career. It has something to say about the way that you spend money. It has something to say about where you live. Um, It has something to say about how you treat other people. It has something to say about how you parent your children. It has something to say about what your family does and doesn't do. It has something to say about literally every area of your life. And so if you have sequestered the gospel um, into a corner of your life that relates to the most spiritual 2% of things things that relate to the church or the Bible or that kind of stuff. That's the only place where kind of the gospel of Jesus exists in your life. And that's part of the point of this study, is opening our eyes to the full scope, full-scale reality, the the all-encompassing, all-of-life nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another quote from the book, he says, We need to know how to address the struggles of life and the everyday activities we engage in with what is true of Jesus. The truths of what he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. And as a result, what is true of us as we put our faith in him, the gospel has the power to affect everything in our lives. Let's look at another text. This is also from Ephesians, two chapters later. Ephesians 4 11 through 16. Um, And this is a great text. It says, He gave, gave, uh, and again, this is Paul writing, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Man, this is a great text. And uh, I want to start by uh, taking just a quick look at this first sentence. It says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so, um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but, but right here at the beginning, what we learn is that God has given certain kinds of people to the church for the purpose of strengthening and edifying and growing up the church. And these, uh, these things are sometimes called, called the fivefold ministry, or you may see them called the apest, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Um, but I, I wanted to just quickly kind of walk through what we mean by those things. And so apostles, when we talk about apostles, um, that word can kind of be used in two ways. Um, one is, is capital A, apostles, where we're talking about guys like Peter and James and John and Paul, men who were disciples, direct disciples of Jesus Christ, um, who were the fathers of the church of the first century. Um, these apostles seem to have some um, special giftings, um, that were given to them by God. They seem to have an ability to do uh, some things that uh, maybe we don't see as often in the church today. Um, but more than anything, the apostles were sent with this great commission to go and make more disciples, um, to effectively plant the church. And um, we are uh, here today because of them. You know, without, without them... We don't have the church in America today, or anywhere else in the world, for that matter. Um, so that's one way that we can talk about apostle. One way is we're talking about a very specific group of people from the scriptures. Um, another way is to use that word as more of an adjective, um, lowercase a, apostle. And, and, and this is, I think, more what Paul is talking about here. Um, he, he's talking about people who extend the gospel. Um, these are kind of the sent ones that ensure that the faith is transmitted from one context to another or from one generation to the next. Um, these are people who are always thinking about the future. They're bridging barriers. They're establishing the church in new contexts. They're developing leaders. They're networking um, translocally. Um, these are risk-taker, entrepreneurial type people. And Paul's saying the church needs this type of person, needs this type of leadership. We need leaders that are forward-thinking, that are out front, that are saying, yeah, but what about this? And how do we get something started over here? And let's take a risk here and do this. Um, we need apostles um, in the church today, that people that have that apostolic tendency or gifting. Secondly, prophets. Uh, prophets know God's will. We're not necessarily talking about Old Testament prophets here, like Isaiah, we're just talking about people who maybe have a gift of discernment, or people who seem to uh, just know the Lord's will, um, people who seem to have some insight into what God wants, they're particularly attuned to Him and His truth, um, they bring correction sometimes, or they bring challenge um, into a setting, maybe they challenge the assumptions that we inherit from, uh, from our culture, or whether that could be a church culture even. Um, and, and these are people that generally want us to obey. Prophets are 
very concerned that we do what God has told us to do. And so prophets are incredibly important. We need those kinds of people in leadership. Next are evangelists. I think this is a word that probably most of us in our culture are familiar with. Um, however, it's a word that sometimes have, has negative connotations for people. Um, evangelists recruit. Um, they are incredible communicators of the gospel message. And they recruit other people to the cause. They are uh, people that often call for a personal response to Jesus. Um, they live to see people respond to Jesus. Um, they uh, want to see believers engage the wider mission. They want to see the church grow. Um, evangelists are the kind of people that can get up and share the gospel message and can see response and see life changed. And, um, and these people are essential in the leadership of the church. Next, shepherds. And the last two are shepherds and teachers. And some people would say that in the original Greek language, these aren't necessarily two separate things in Ephesians, but are intended to be one role, the role of shepherd-teacher. Um, but either way, I, I think the, the traits that we assign to these two things are um, in line, whether you consider it one thing or two things, um, and are absolutely essential. So shepherds nurture and protect and teachers understand and explain. Um, shepherds tend to be the caregivers of the community, like they focused on, uh, on the protection and the spiritual maturity of God's flock. Uh, teachers are people who are communicators of God's truth and wisdom, and they help others remain biblically grounded, like we want to stand firm in God's word. The point of all of this, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, is that we need a healthy mix of these giftings in the leadership of the church. And unfortunately, in today's world, especially here in America, I think most often that is not the case. I think most often, because we have kind of this senior pastor culture, where we kind of expect one guy to be at the top of the pyramid, and we expect him to be good at all of those things, um, often what we find is that that, that senior pastor guy is, is primarily gifted maybe in one of these areas, Maybe he's a gifted evangelist, and so people want to come hear him speak. Um, people respond when he speaks. Uh, the church has seen tremendous growth that has come from his, from his teaching and, and, and preaching. And unfortunately, what happens in a lot of cases is, is that person wants to surround himself with other people who are most like him. And uh, it's, it's not always necessarily a cult of personality, but it is... Um, it is sort of a, a cult of temperament, or to some extent. Um, and, and here's the thing. When you start putting apostles and shepherds together, you know, there, there might be some headbutting that goes on. You start throwing all of these things up in the mix together. It's not always easy. We have to practice a great deal of humility with each other. And yet, if the church doesn't have this, um, this plurality and... and also just this um, diversification of leadership, then there are probably some significant areas where the church is lacking. And sometimes, I, I wonder, and I've, I've heard some other people wonder this, I wonder if sometimes if when Christians leave a church because the church isn't doing something 
in particular that they like or that they feel like the church should be doing, if some of that isn't the result of that lack of leadership, of that particular lack of leadership within the church. For example, you may have a church with a pastor that really, really cares for people, and he is that shepherding personality. I mean, he's more than happy to spend all of his time at the nursing home or the hospital or visiting people at their homes or praying with people and loving on people or counseling people, but maybe he's not an evangelist. And so maybe it doesn't seem like there's great power in his preaching, and it doesn't seem like there are just people who are flocking to that church to hear great preaching, or maybe it seems like no one's gotten saved in a long time in that church. And it could be because there is a lack of an uh, evangelistic gifting in the senior leadership of the church. And so sometimes you have people who go, hey, we love that our pastor is a great shepherd, but man, we want to see people come to know Jesus because we have this uh, evangelical tendency. And, um, and so anyway, the, the whole point there is that we need a great diversification of leaders within the church. Um, now, <laughs> with that under our belt, the real key in this text that we wanted to focus in on, Ephesians 4, particularly verses 15 and 16, now that we understand that this group of people has been given to the church to grow the church up, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, meaning not just to feed the sheep, but to actually train the sheep to go feed other sheep and to go and train other sheep, raising up disciples so that they might go and do the work of ministry. Um, These gifts have been given to the church for that purpose, uh, to grow people up into mature manhood, to make sure that people are not swayed by every new idea that comes around, every wind of doctrine, it says. Uh, But rather... Verse 15, it says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this is, this is a key point in this text, that we have to speak the truth in love to each other, And if we are doing that, that it's going to be a catalyst for us growing up into Christ. And that ideally, if the body of Jesus is going to work properly, then every element of the body has to be healthy. The legs, the arms, the ligaments, the bones, the joints, uh, the marrow, the organs, everything has to be healthy. And the same thing is true of your own body. Like if you're going to experience wellness in your life, then all of the elements of your body need to be healthy. The same thing is true in the church. We need health. We need wellness. Um, and, and in order to achieve that, we need people growing up into Christ, not staying infants, um, not staying children, but becoming mature men and women. And that group of people, the APEST, That's the group of people that is sent by God and equipped by God to raise people up into the likeness of Jesus. But this key here is this idea of speaking the truth in love. So what is that? What does it mean to speak the truth in love? Uh, A lot of times when I hear this phrase, uh, someone is talking about sharing hard truth in a loving way. Um, or, as it may more often be the case, that somebody is talking about sharing their opinion 
with some other person in a loving way. You know, it's, it's kind of tantamount to saying, uh, I think you are a jerk, but I love you and I want the best for you, and that's why I'm telling you that. Right? Or, or it seems to me that you are uh, terrible at your job, <laughs> but I love you and I want you to succeed, and so I'm telling you this. A lot of times it's uh, just about us sharing an opinion about another person with them um, or, or being honest with another person about what we see, but trying to do that in a loving way. I think that's what most of us think this text is talking about, but it's not. Um, and, and the reason why it's not is because of a couple verses later, um, verses 20 and 21. It says this, it says, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And so when Paul says we need to speak the truth in love to each other, he's not talking about um, all kinds of truth. He's not talking about your opinion. He's not talking about necessarily what you see in another person or sharing your opinion with another person in a loving way. And, and yes, there's a time and a place to do some of that stuff. But what Paul is specifically talking about is about sharing the truth of Jesus with other people. Um, that by sharing the truth of Jesus with other people, then we are building people up, we are growing people up into the likeness of Christ, so that the whole body might be healthy. So ultimately, he is talking about preaching the gospel to each other. Right? So he's talking about sharing the gospel with each other and speaking the gospel into the whole of our life. Not just preaching the gospel in a Sunday morning sense, and you may be going, man, I'm not a preacher. What are you talking about? Yeah, but you are a follower of Jesus Christ, hopefully. Um, you have been empowered with His Holy Spirit. You have been gifted by Him. You have been sent out by Him. And you have a responsibility to not just know the gospel, but to speak the gospel into the everyday stuff of life. So speaking the truth in love is all about speaking Jesus to people, speaking the gospel to people. Um, from the book, Jeff Anderstelt says, Paul knows that if people are going to grow up into Christ in every way, they need to hear the truths of Jesus and learn to speak the truths of Jesus into everything. Too often when people uh, are, when giving people answers to their questions or solutions to their problems, we give them something other than Jesus. Right? If they are struggling with their finances, we give them the best budgeting plans we know of. Right? We give them Dave Ramsey. And if they're working hard through relational discord, we teach them communication techniques, or we send them to the best counselor we know of. Or if they're struggling with doubt, we challenge them to just believe. We promise them that everything will get better if they do. But we fail if we don't give them Jesus. And oftentimes, what we give people in those seasons reveals what we actually believe. Right? If you're having a marital crisis, and we believe that the number one thing that can best help you is a great licensed professional counselor, then it shows what we really believe about Jesus. Because ultimately, the only one who has the power to heal anything in our broken world is Jesus. 
Now, that's not to say that a great counselor won't help you in some way, that a great counselor hasn't been empowered by God in some way to help you. But ultimately, if that's our first stop, rather than the truth of the gospel, then we haven't given people the thing that can truly heal them. We've given them something secondary. Vanderstelt says, this is why so many people look to Jesus only for their afterlife. They've been given the truths of Jesus primarily as the answer for going to heaven when they die, but they have little knowledge of how Jesus gives a better answer for what they do with their money, their sexuality, their work, or their families. We don't know how Jesus speaks to all those things. What does Jesus have to say about my money? Well, believe it or not, it's one of the things he talked about most, and yet we miss it. What does Jesus have to say about the way that I parent? What does Jesus have to say about my job? What, is ha- what does Jesus have to say about uh, our debt? Uh, what does Jesus have to say about where my kids go to school? Well, he has something to say about all of those things. And um, until we start speaking the truth of the gospel to each other, it's going to be difficult for us to know what those things are. So another question as we wrap up. What does it mean to you to be gospel fluent? So hopefully you realize that, you know, that word fluent um, has to do with language. And, and most of the time when we're using that word, we're using it in the context of speaking another language. But what does it really mean to be fluent in another language? Well, fluency is not simply when I uh, am able to recognize some of the words in, in, say, Spanish, for example. Because as it is now, I, I, I do know a little bit of Spanish. I can recognize some of those words. But it takes me an incredibly long time to uh, kind of mentally work through the process of translating and retranslating. Because what has to happen when I hear a word in Spanish is, is I have to mentally go, okay, what does that word mean in English. So I have to translate it in my mind into English, and then I have to go, okay, well, how do I respond to what was said in Spanish? So then I have to go, well, what's the right English response? And then I have to mentally figure out how do I say that in Spanish. That's not fluency. Um, Fluency is when that whole process uh, happens in a millisecond. I don't even have to think about it anymore. Like this way of speaking is such a huge part of my life that uh, the, the mechanics of translation uh, happen effortlessly and in next to no time. Um, one thing that people say is that when you are fluent in a language, and, and we see this to be true in our lives, I'm fluent in English, for example. Uh, so uh, what language do I dream in? Well, I don't dream in... Russian. I don't know Russian. Um, I dream in English. And that when people become fluent in another language, um, it's quite possible that they will begin to dream in that language. It has become so ingrained within them that it shapes even their unconscious mind. And so when we talk about gospel fluency, we're saying we want to see the same thing happen. We go back to that first question, how would you define the gospel? That's a challenging question, sadly, 
for many Christians. That's a challenging question for many people who've been in the church for 30, 40 years, and it's because they are not gospel fluent. They don't know how, not only to just describe the basic gospel itself, but they certainly don't know how to speak it into the everyday stuff of life. And so that is our goal in this study, um, is for us to, one, understand that that's a need, and two, begin taking steps towards gospel fluency. And so um, we're going to wrap up for this week um, with just these two thoughts. The way that we become fluent is by listening and by practicing. So if you are uh, trying to learn another language, one of the greatest things that you can do is immerse yourself um, in the culture of that language. So if you're trying to learn Spanish, moving to Mexico or to Spain, um, and just immersing yourself in that culture, in that community, um, gives you the greatest opportunity for success in becoming fluent. And a big part of it is about listening and, and just that saturation of the language. And so we need to be saturated with gospel-centered community. We need to spend our time around other people that speak the gospel fluently and who are able to speak it into our lives. And then we need to start practicing. You don't suddenly just start speaking the language fluently. You have to work up to it. Um, You have to begin trying and failing. And that's okay. That's a part of the process. So, hey, we're going to stop there for this week. We will pick up next week. And I uh, really appreciate, appreciate you guys taking some time to listen to this. Hope it's, help, hope it's helpful and meaningful to you. And uh, we'll see you next week as a part of our Covenant Equipping series.